Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Both Sides of the Stethoscope. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Colby Salerno, here with my co-host, Dr. Aline Gregosian. Hey, everyone. We have a fun episode planned for you today. We are going to take a trip into the world of AI. Now that ChatGPT is all the rage, uh, we thought we would get into it. And we are welcoming on a very special guest, Dr. Roham Goswami. Aline, do you want to do the introduction? I'm really excited to introduce Dr. Goswami to us. He's basically, I, I met him just a few months ago at uh, ISHLT, but I've I've known him via social media for a while now. He's the assistant professor of medicine at Mayo Clinic, uh, associate program director of the Advanced Heart Failure Fellowship Program, and the program director of the Research Fellowship Program, all at Mayo Clinic. Um, his interests are in AI and innovation around heart failure and transplant. So we're really excited to have you here. Thanks. I'm very excited to be here. I appreciate you guys giving me the invitation. Yeah, so I think... Um... Before we get into, you know, the the AI talk, and I think maybe we'll touch a little bit about uh, mechanical support in the heart transplant world, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in advanced heart failure and cardiology. Yeah, so it's a, it's a very interesting journey. You know, I think um, you're not always sure where you're going to end up, but I'm one of those people that believes that everything happens for a reason. So uh, my journey started out actually in medical school in the Caribbean. So I went to med school at the American University of the Caribbean, which is basically like DIY med school. Um, most of our professors were there on vacation and uh, did my did my residency in internal medicine at uh, Stanford Hospital in Connecticut. And then my general medicine or general cardiology fellowship at the University of Tennessee in Memphis, and, you know, it's interesting, my exposure to heart failure and transplant was um, not great at, um, at during my fellowship, but actually during internal medicine, I rotated through Mount Sinai and through Columbia Presbyterian and really saw, you know, the, the way advanced heart failure and, and cardiogenic shock management really can change the course of somebody's life. And uh, I don't have to tell you guys that, of course. Um, but it was very, it was very uplifting to see the way people connected with their patients. And, and I love the long longevity of, of being able to take care of somebody for the rest of their life. And so I was, I was drawn to it immediately, um, during my second year of residency. And so I knew in general fellowship, I was going to apply for, for transplant and heart failure. And I, um, you know, being an IMG and being somebody who didn't feel like they were the, the best, uh, CV person in the world, um, didn't really think I would have a lot of options at, at, at big academic transplant centers. But, you know, I have a very supportive family and my wife is awesome. And she really pushed me to apply for the fellowship program at Mayo in Jacksonville. And I did. Um, and uh, it, was, it was an awesome experience during the interview, seeing, seeing the ECMO patients and patients on mechanical support and, and post-transplant. And I didn't think I'd, I was going to get it. I was, you know, one of 10 people I think they interviewed that year. And and um, went home and told my wife, all right, you know, we'll probably won't be going to, to Florida for, for a while, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. And then happened to get a call on a Tuesday in the middle of rounds. And um, it was Dr. Patel, who was the program director at the time. And um, he was kind of like, hey, do you want the job? And, and I was like, yeah, of course. And he's like, well, think about it. Ask your wife. I was like, no, no, no. I've talked to my wife. I'm going to take it. And, uh, and so then this I, is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. I was like, man, Mayo Clinic, I'm not going to turn them down. And, and just, you know, the way 
um, the way it's evolved from there is, is, you know, they've really helped support my passion for, for research and for innovation and, and development. And, you know, the Mayo Clinic model is very different than most hospital systems. And, and I think it really fosters kind of collaboration and innovation and, and really helps you, you push the boundary. So it's, it's an awesome journey and I'm, I'm still, you know, sometimes wake up and go to work and I'm like, wow, this is really what I get to do. Huh? So very, very fortunate. That's really nice to hear. Um, I always hear that about Mayo Clinic and how people, not only patients there, but even like physicians who work for Mayo are always like, yeah, it's amazing. What do you think makes Mayo Clinic so amazing? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So the coolest thing I think about Mayo Clinic was the experience of being hired there. Um, so it's different than any other hospital you'll ever work at. There's no contracts. I've never signed a piece of paper saying I work at Mayo mm-hmm. Clinic. Um, I applied for the fellowship and went through the process. And, um, you know, the one thing you learn after working at Mayo Clinic is patience because they take a very long time to make a very, you know, appropriate decision for the organization and, and for their patients. And, um, and I just was called into the director's office one day and he said, Hey, do you want the job? And I said, yeah, absolutely. He said, okay. And I, but it was funny. because so I said, Oh, let me just, you know, double check with my wife. He's like, no, no, shake my hand right now. It's done. And I said, really? Said, yeah. And I said, all right. And I shook his hand and then I had a job. I had no idea what my salary was. I had no idea what anything was, but, uh, but, but that's all it was. And, and to this day, I've never signed a piece of paper to work there. So I think, you know, they attract people that they know that want to work there. Um, right. But I think the other thing that's really important too is, you know, every physician at Mayo Clinic gets paid the exact same amount of money. So it's all based on how long you've been there. So it doesn't matter if you're the director or if you're a new guy. You know mm-hmm. that all the new people make the same amount of money as you, and you know when you get there, you're there for eight years, you'll make the same amount of money as everybody else who's been there for eight years. And so we're not based on you know I have to see a hundred patients, I have to read fifty echoes, I have to do you know X, Y, and Z. Um, I honestly, it's kind of you know probably a little too much detail about what I don't know, but I don't know how to bill. You know, I, yeah. I still don't understand what an RVU is. And right. so, wow. you know, that's amazing. Yeah. And so it's very, very much focused on patient centered care. And, you know, one of the best quotes when they do the marial orientation and they give you all their information is the needs of the patient come first. And in the beginning, you're kind of like, yeah, but does it really? And then as you mm-hmm. work there, you realize that, you know, from the janitors to the techs, to the nurses, to the physicians, to everybody in the hospital, even the receptionist on the phone, they're very much focused on the patient experience. And I think, you know, that's evident in when I see patients in clinic, we have an hour to visit with them and we go through all of their testing and, you know, nothing feels rushed. And, and I think that's, you know, that's, that's something very unique uh, about Mayo. So, I mean, I think when, when people work at Mayo, they work there because it gives them an opportunity to feel like they can really make a difference. They're not, you know, pushed to meet some sort of metric. And, um, you know, you know, you have somebody who is above you who's supporting whatever ventures and, advent, uh, you know, patient things you need. I mean, one of the coolest examples I can give you to illustrate that is we have patients that are sent to us for advanced heart failure care from all over the country. And um, if we need a hospital, hospital transfer, you know, um, I don't worry about is the patient going to be covered or not. If the patient needs to come to Mayo, they can come to Mayo. And, you know, just this weekend I was on call and we took a patient who had no insurance, who was a 50-year-old in cardiogenic shock and needed an advanced heart failure workup. And 
we, you know, we said we would accept him, but we knew he didn't have insurance. And so we wanted to be able to see if there was a backup center that would be able to help him out. And so our financial people actually will look into who will take patients if they can't come to Mayo so we can get that information to the referring provider. So that way the delay is, is non-existent for that patient. So I, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of just built into to what Mayo is. It's incredible. Yeah, I don't think this episode was supposed to be um, made for a pitch as to why I should be considering Mayo for Advanced Heart Failure or Transplant Fellowship, but it's working. Um, I guess a discussion, a discussion for later on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think you know, switching gears a little bit. Um, I don't even know how to kind of the best way to approach this question, but from your point of view, what? is AI doing these days to kind of change the field of advanced heart failure? And where do you think see things possibly moving into the future? Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, it's an interesting question to ask. And and I think one thing for the audience who's listening to this to understand is, is AI is not just new in 2023, right? We've had AI since probably 1990. Um, and it's been kind of slowly building upon itself. And you know, the first iteration of AI that I think the world was introduced to was very basic and very kind of just input based. And, um, you know, that that was Amazon's Alexa. And you ask her a question and she tells you what time it is and what the weather's like in a city you're traveling to. And, you know, even though that was just interaction, it was to some degree a, a system doing a task that um, you know, uh, in, instead of a human. And so that's kind of the, the basics of AI when people, when I try to start talking to people about it. But I think when we look at what's evolved over the last 10 to 20 years, um, you know, medicine, unfortunately, like many things, because it affects a human life and, and the, the outcome of a patient and it's a tangible outcome has been very resistant to that integration of advanced machine learning and, and, and computational science. And, you know, you can look at um, the biggest thing besides TikTok these days is ChatGPT, right? And so yes. ChatGPT is, um, is cool and fun and I've used it and, you know, it helps me rewrite sentences so that I sound smarter and, you know, look up information so that, um, you know, maybe you can convey something in a, in a clearer, clearer path. But, you know, the, the chat GPT to me is not really artificial intelligence. Chat GPT is a computer synthesizing information for me, but not really providing um, any sort of meaningful incremental benefit to my tasks every day. Like, can it write a soap note? Sure. Can it pass the bar and the step? Yeah, absolutely. But it's just because it has access to information and it can put things together the way we can't or or maybe somebody can't as fast. And so when I think about innovation, you know, I think medicine has multiple facets of innovation. And I think AI is not something that will ever replace a physician. I think it will be another tool in our toolbox, right? So it will help us synthesize the bedside vitals and the lab work and the image results, and it will interpret it based on not just one person's data set, but it'll interpret it based on 100,000 data points in a patient. And, and we are seeing some clinical application of that. And, and, you know, one of the easiest things I can talk to is the research that I've done. And we've focused on using artificial intelligence at Mayo uh, to help advanced heart failure and transplant patients live longer. And so one of the projects that we've done is, is, is focused on how we can take something that's ubiquitous, like the EKG, 
and use that to um, kind of uh, as a pathway into the AI field. And so we've looked at how um, patients who have received organ transplants um, have a physiologic age, right? So you're 50 or 40 or whatever, um, based on how ill you are, but you also have a chronologic age based on how actually old you are. And so the question is, you know, if somebody's 35 years old and they get a 20-year-old organ, are they now 20 or are they 32 or are they 31? And right. so I get asked yeah. that all the time, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I wanted to look into that. And so we 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 have an AI algorithm. It's been validated by the folks in Rochester and is, is available in our EMR. And so we actually did a project where we found um, that the um, age of the donor and the age of the recipient um, is different after transplantation. And so um, the EKG can predict your, your chronologic age compared to your physiologic age. And we see that there are patients who are closer to their donor's age after transplant, and we see patients that don't change after transplant. And when we look at their one-year outcomes, we actually see that the EKG age that's predicted actually can inform us on patients that may be higher risk for rejection or mortality at one year after transplant. Wait, so it's an actual EKG that you put on patients, like the leads, and, and it gives yeah. you this data? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so we can take the, so we, uh, we can take the 12 lead data. Um, and when we think about EKG, right, we think about these, like, stickers that we put on patients that, that we get just these, like, squiggly lines and, oh, okay, right. they're having an MI or not. But there's a lot more physiologic data in an EKG because it takes into account kind of the, you know, inflammatory milieu, the time it takes for that signal to go through the heart and into the adipose and the skin and the soft tissue and then into that lead. It takes into account, you know, the patient's extracellular volume, intracellular volume. There's a lot of different, you know, properties just from that one signal that we're getting that the EKG AI system that's been built can actually figure out. And so, you know, we're able to say, okay, this patient at the time of discharge had an EKG that showed that they're 60 years old. Um, their donor was 20 and their actual age was 68. So they've, they've actually decreased in their, in their physiologic age. And so we know that that's less of a risk for rejection at one year versus if somebody's 53 and gets a 20-year-old organ and then they're 57 at the time of discharge. We know that that person's increased risk for potential rejection after one year. So there are a lot of, you know, potential applications for this. To um, play a little devil's advocate for you right now, I read EKGs daily and the computer gives a reading of it and the computer is wrong quite a bit. Yes, is you are correct. The, yeah. So is this the same type of application where a computer is giving you their interpretation of the EKG or are you using data that's been extrapolated over time from transplant patients and then you read the EKG and determine if you're seeing this. Right. So it's kind of a combination. So the algorithm has been validated on about 450,000 patients um, and it continues to self-validate when we run it. So, you know, this was employed about five years ago at um, uh, the research level. And so over the last five years, every time we run the algorithm, it's a neural network algorithm. So it learns. 
And so it gets more accurate the more it's used. And so you obviously can't say that, yes, this person will reject, but it gives you the, hey, maybe this is a high-risk category patient. Maybe you should see them a little bit closer in clinic. And so it gives us an output. It says, this is what I think the patient's physiologic age is, right? And then what you do with that number is up to you. Um, but the way we look at it is we look at that as a piece of the clinical data. And then when we look at it statistically, like multivariate analysis or logistic regression or, or looking at an AUC, we find that there is a correlation with patients that do better the closer they are to their donor's age um, on the 12 lead EKG. So, so you're right. There, it's not 100%. You know, and, and like I said, I don't think the AI will tell us this person will reject in a year. But it'll tell us, hey, this person's a little high risk, so keep an eye on them. Just like if you have some nonspecific ST changes and the patient may or may not have chest pain, right? You're going to say, okay, well, you know, maybe we should do a CTA or a, or a cath or whatever. Well, I'm an ER doctor, so everybody just gets a CTA and a cath. That's right. That's, <laughs> that's, that's true. And an echo and a troponin. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But I think, you know, that's just one example. You right. know, that's a very specific example. And and there are definitely pitfalls to, to artificial intelligence in medicine. Um, I personally think, and my goal would be that we get to a point where we can create profiles of patients, really individualize medicine and say, hey, you're 43 years old, you have X, Y, and Z labs, this is your family history. And based on our billion patients that have come ahead of you, this is what we think will mitigate your risk of coronary disease or, you know, prostate cancer or breast cancer or whatever that case may be. Because we have, you know, we have data. The problem is the data is muddled, right? Mm -hmm. So Cerner versus Epic versus, you know, whatever 50 other EMRs are out there, calculate and save the data in a certain way. And so you really have to have clean data to be able to get good output from it. And so I think that, you know, generalizable AI in medicine is still probably 10 years away. Mm -hmm. um, I think specific applications at specific centers that have the capabilities of doing the things in real time and, and, and at their hospital are going to be the centers where, um, you know, you're going to see more AI involved. Um, you know, there's there if you guys saw the news this week, the guy that co-founded Spotify has now um, started a, a medical startup where he wants to start doing whole body scans on people to see if they have a, quote, risk for any type of medical disease. And, you know, I, I think um, people are seeing that there's a potential in medicine to kind of, you know, use technology and combine it with their expertise in AI and machine learning. But I think you have to be careful because, you know, as you mentioned, everybody in the ER gets a CT scan and an ultrasound, <laughs> right? right? And so how many of those people have incidental, you know, thyroid nodules or right, you know, adenomas that don't mean anything? Right. But all then the you time. then you go through all these extra steps. And and so I think, you know, I, I think it brings in my mind, it brings up two two big things. You know, equity in healthcare is a big, big um, imbalance right now. And I think, you know, in order to be able to apply AI, you have to be able to apply it equitably. You have to be able to give it to all the patients that are that are seeking medical care. And until we can really do that in a way that is reasonable and affordable and um, available, I, I don't think medicine is going to see AI in, in the clinical perspective. I think for research aspects, it's it's there, we're using mm -hmm. it, and that's really where it's going to to drive things forward. You know, if we can use AI to figure out and how to map protein receptors and create a cure for X, Y, and Z disease, that would be ideal. Um, and I think that's how you're going to be able to to really push the needle forward with AI in medicine. 
Right. I think that even, you know, these clinics are popping up where you can get full body scans and it sounds great, right? Like to a patient who's like, oh, I can just go in and get, but when you know kind of the intricacies and the resources that you might be wasting if something is incidentally found, uh, it just ends up being really complicated. And accessibility is a big issue too. So like what the people who are going to be able to afford these pan scans are going to be the ones who are going to, you know, get them and, and find out what they have, whereas other people who can't afford it won't be able to. So those are those are issues that we're talking about more and more nowadays um, between or amongst physicians. Um, so, yeah, I don't really know how I feel about the pan scan thing, but overall technology in general, we have to go about it in a very careful way. It's, it is very complicated. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah. And one of the big things I always tell my patients when I have discussions with them, you know, because we'll get patients that have had, they're like, oh, well, can you do this by X, Y, and Z test? And I always tell my patients, I say, look, can we do it? Sure. Should we do it? Probably mm-hmm. not. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, just because we can doesn't mean we should. And, right. and, and I think when you are in a society like we are, especially in the United States, Um, You know, one of my ICU attendings used to say, you know, this isn't McDonald's. It's not the dollar menu. You can't just pick what you want. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of patients feel like, oh, I have healthcare, I have insurance, just do all the tests and and fix me, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think, you know, it's important for people to understand that, that just because you're, you know, looking doesn't mean that you should, you know, follow that kind of red herring. Right. Totally. Yeah, I think that brings up just the one point I was going to make, whereas if the, you do the more tests, you know, it like it's, it sounds amazing. But what people I don't think grasp is the idea of something called a false positive, whereas a test can find something that is looks abnormal. Um, and then if you further work it up, it's found out to be that that was just a false re- finding from the test. And we see that a lot in cardiology where we do these non-invasive studies, whether it's stress tests or echoes or something that patients really want because they want to get answers. And then I'll, every so often we'll find something that's abnormal. So then you'll go for an invasive procedure where we do like a cardiac catheterization. And the 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 risk of cardiac catheterization is low. You know, we do them all the time. But we have had patients who had no, you know, blockages in the arteries of the heart who go in for this routine procedure and have died um, just because of a finding that was on one of these studies. So there's, you know, there's always going to be some consequences maybe to what we're doing. And that's why the idea of just full body scans and just checking for everything is not always the best answer. Yep, absolutely. Unfortunately, you mentioned statistics, so everybody just stopped listening to the podcast. (laughs) You were mentioning area under the curve and like linear analysis. I died. That's true. I started this. Yeah, you started us down this road. What about? Um, are you seeing any technology being used in specifically like detecting heart failure or like not transplant related or like sarcoidosis or amyloidosis yep. or things like that? Yeah, no, that's actually a fantastic question. So, you know, the FDA um, just approved the first um, stethoscope to utilize an AI algorithm to detect uh, cardiovascular disease from heart tones. Hmm. Um, And so the ECHO stethoscope, which is um, supported by a company that Mayo is partnering with, um, will release that in their stethoscope and it'll give you a prediction of if the patient, the 
stethoscope thinks the patient has cardiomyopathy. Um, you know, Apple, um, Samsung, all these companies are looking at, at algorithms to use in their watches, right? Like the EKG to detect AFib with your Apple Watch. Um, and there's a lot of other companies that are looking at non-invasive um, patches or, or watches or, or, or body-placed devices that can use AI to predict cardiomyopathy, pulmonary hypertension. You know, you can think of it like, um, for the cardiologist listening to this podcast, is like a non-invasive uh, external cardiomems. And so you don't have to put a device in somebody's pulmonary artery to measure their pressures anymore. You can just put a patch on their skin. Uh, and so those are real and they're, they're coming out, um, you know, from, from a cardiomyopathy standpoint, uh, the, the, um, Apple watch is partnering with, um, one of, or is going to potentially partner with, um, a company that has an AI algorithm to look at EKGs that predicts heart failure. Um, and it's ac very accurate. And just by your, your single EDCG, you can predict if your EF is less than 50% or not. Really? Yeah. This is, this is happening like right this is now? Happening right now. That's right. Yeah. So it's a company called Anumana, I believe, that's associated with Mayo Clinic um, in Rochester. And they're using some of our research that we did on transplant patients, actually, um, to, to kind of prove that that algorithm works. Um, and so there is, there is talks with different device companies to look at predicting low ejection fraction just on a wristwatch. Aline, I'll be working for them in the morning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would love to. <laughs> exactly. no. I mean, I've no, seen it, it. You know, it, this stuff works. I've seen patients who say their Apple Watch detected AFib and it 100% did. I mean, my dad's that patient. My mm -hmm. dad had palpitations and he felt nauseous. And I was like, well, you have an Apple Watch. What's your rhythm? And he's like, I don't know. It keeps beeping at me saying my heart rate's 130. What do I do? So now he's on Xarelto and Ticasin. So well, there <laughs> you go. That, that actually happened to me. I had a PE a couple years ago after one of my after one of my hip replacements, and um, I started feeling really lightheaded and dizzy. And I checked my heart rate, and it showed it detected AFib. Um, so I ended up going to the R. I'm fine now. This was a couple years ago. Um, but like initially, I remember when this happened to me, I was like, oh, my God, it's either rejection or a PE. And I just got my <laughs> I had just gotten my hip replaced. So I was like, it's probably a PE. Like I was like trying to figure it out, like which is very interesting. Um, and so so it was my watch that detected it. Even now, like uh, if I ever feel kind of like weird, I just like do like a one lead EKG and I can yep. see it. It's, it's great. Um, yep. I think I think. Uh, one of the things that it's also really good at, which I was like, I wonder if Apple, if I can ever talk to Apple, um, you know, as a heart transplant patient, my, my resting heart rate is pretty high. Like it's in the hundreds, nineties yeah. uh, to hundreds. And so um, sometimes like in the beginning, when I, for any time it was over a hundred, it would like tell me like you're tech, you have tachycardia. And I'd be like, is there someone at Apple who could fix this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me. exactly. <laughs> That's funny. But uh, yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, my my daughter has SVT. Um, mm -hmm. And so she was born with WPW. Oh, and wow. so whenever she feels um, palpitations or something, she's four and a half now. And so she'll be like, hey, my, my heart feels funny, dad. And so, you know, well, I use my Apple Watch and I put it on her and I have her check her EKG on my Apple Watch and she she knows how to do it. So there's um, there's a lot of there's a lot of cool technology coming out. You know, one of the, the things I think COVID helped push is this remote technology use. Yeah. You know, is is more remote evaluations for for whatever, you know, for blood pressure, for A1Cs, for for heart rates, for 
um, lab work and that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's, there's actually some really cool, um, new technology companies that are out there. There's, there's a company that we're working to partner with called general prognostics that I am very confident is going to revolutionize blood work because they have an, the ability to check your blood work without actually sticking a needle in you. Oh no. Is this another So they actually have a validated AI algorithm that uses um, specific uh, frequency of, of pulse light, uh, and they can check an NT pro BMP. Um, they can check some specific Chem 7 values. And so it's a validated um, undergoing phase three FDA proof trial soon for um, assessing blood work. They must get that poor Theranos joke. Constantly. Yeah, well, I'm sure. <laughs> Actually, it's funny I, I made that joke when they called me. I saw them at SHLT and I was like, Wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> Fool me once, right? Exactly. Um, we've been talking for a little while now, um, but before we, you know, totally end things, I know one of your other interests is in mechanical support systems, um, especially as a bridge to transplant. So, you know, we have a half of our listeners are in the medical field and about half are not. So for those who kind of wouldn't know what we're talking about, what exactly is mechanical support and what's its role in trying to get patients who are very sick to their life-saving heart transplant? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think one correction I would make is is I, th- I tend to look at mechanical support now in, in three different ways. And so the baseline of what MCS is or mechanical support is it's a temporary device that is placed um, from an artery either in the, the axillary or the, the armpit and shoulder area or in the femoral area um, that sits in the heart, in the left side of the heart, and helps pump blood to the organs, um, so brain, kidney, liver, et cetera, to, to prevent organ deterioration while your heart is not working like it should be. Um, and so, you know, I think one of the things that drove me to that is uh, the inability for us to, um, to really be able to optimize patients before um, they need some sort of organ replacement therapy or, or potentially, and, and this is where I was making that asterisk, organ recovery would be ideal. Um, you know, I think we have, um, we have a technology right now in a temporary support device that we can put in through the axillary artery where patients can walk around in the ICU when their heart's not doing well. Um, and uh, it gives us an opportunity to kind of really tune them up. And so, you know, some patients will come to the hospital in cardiogenic shock and, and um, you know, one of the the really proud AI um, processes that I um, have been part of at the Mayo has been the ability to detect shock or patients that are deteriorating while in the hospital sooner in order to intervene earlier. Um, you know, when patients have a heart attack, people always talk about time is muscle. Um, same with the stroke, right? Time is brain. And so I think that when patients have a heart that a pump that's failing and that could potentially affect other organs and increase the likelihood of you to have, um, you know, an, a complication that results in a death of a patient, you know, the sooner we intervene, the sooner we identify, the better. Um, and so our mechanical circulatory support right now has evolved over the last five years. We used to be very... Um, uh, limited in what we could do because of the complications from these devices. And, you know, when you put in pumps into patients, you have the risk of the blood cell shearing and, and causing kidney issues and, and bleeding issues. 
Uh, and, you know, over the last three to five years, the pump technology has improved. And, you know, we've, we were luckily to be part of a, a preclinical um, uh, series of, of um, um, I don't really know how you'd call it, a preclinical um, or a pre-market approval uh, of a pump called the Impella. And the Impella 5.5 is the newest version of that pump and it is it is a fantastic pump because it allows the patient to uh, recover it allows us to improve their end organ function and actually with our research um, that we've published and and some that's coming in the next few months um, we've actually shown that in patients that have heart failure right so your heart's not working we know that it can affect your kidneys we know that it can affect the lungs um, and, and cause high blood pressure in the lungs and cause long-term kidney issues from the lack of blood flow or the increase of pressures in the kidney circuit um, we've actually found that by using the impella device on top of any other therapy we've had in the recent number of years that I can remember, we are able to now have patients who have kidney recovery, who have the reversal of high blood pressure in their lungs or pulmonary hypertension. Um, and actually, it's allowed us to, um, to really rethink who would be a candidate for advanced therapies, heart transplant, heart pumps, and things like that. You know, and so I'm sure you guys have encountered patients who, you know, they had really high lung pressures or pulmonary hypertension and, and every transplant center you called said, you know, they're not a candidate because they have high lung pressures and they need, uh, you know, another type of device to survive. And so we've actually found that in those patients that that were denied it elsewhere, we've taken those patients on and we've successfully um, transplanted them with without having to do a heart and lung transplant or a heart and kidney transplant. We've actually been able to save those other organs and only have to do heart transplants if needed. Yeah, that's amazing. And so we do kind of, so we have a work group actually called uh, Road HF. So it's uh, Recovery and Optimization in Acute Decompensated Heart Failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's uh, a group that I started with a couple of other partners here in, in the state of Florida, actually. And um, our goal is to to redefine and, and help people understand a little bit better that, hey, you know, you actually can do amazing things for patients if you just wait. And that's the biggest lesson that we've learned by using this mm-hmm. mechanical circulatory support is that, you know, just like people say time is muscle for heart attacks, you know, time has the potential for recovery in patients with chronic heart failure. And so we've taken patients that have had, you know, um, lung pressures that would be prohibitive at other centers or kidney function that would be prohibitive at other centers or even in our own center when we started this. And we've said, you know what, let's let's think outside the box and see how we can help our patients achieve better quality and quantity of life. Because we, we know that the survival with a heart-lung transplant is limited to about five to ten years without the need for a retransplant. Um, the risk of rejection and complications from a heart-kidney transplant are significant. Um, and, um, you know, we have... We have been able to successfully transplant uh, quite a number of patients um, that have done very well, and uh, you know we just put out a, a paper on how to how to transplant older patients that are above the age of fifty with this Impella device, and and kind of outline how we do it, what the protocol is, and and kind of touch on how we can improve patients' kidney functions and uh, and reverse their pulmonary hypertension. Um, and so we have a lot of data that we're we're working to publish uh, in a number of different journals to help people kind of see this message. But uh, you know, I think it's important that as we you know, along with AI and 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 
and that kind of innovation, we also have to innovate the way we think about approaching patients. And we, we know we have to be fluid. We can't be static because, you know, just because something was done X, Y, and Z way 10 years ago in the field of medicine in the world, everything evolves. And I, and I think, you know, if we're not evolving with the therapies that are available for our patients, we really won't be able to provide them the best care. And, you know, luckily at Mayo, we, we've been part of this um, and leading this this charge to really help people understand um, that there's an alternative out there for patients. You know, you don't often have to say, oh, you have kidney failure and heart failure and you have high blood pressure in your lungs, you should go to hospice. You know, we, we don't necessarily think that's the case right off the bat. I think being able to to give patients options is is extremely important. And sometimes the option is, hey, we've looked at the data and unfortunately, that type of therapy won't work for you, but we're here to support you throughout the rest of the life that you have. And we want to make sure that your quality of life for whatever quantity it may be is reasonable. And and I think that, you know, that's an okay answer sometimes. It's not the answer that the patient may want to hear, but I think as long as you're open and honest with the patient, you know, and support them through their journey, that's really what matters. For the most part, how long would you say, for example, these patients with kidney disease and high pulmonary pressures, how long are they staying on the Impella 5.5 before you're seeing a turnaround and then a possible heart transplant if you can't recover the heart itself? Yeah. So, so you know, it's a, it's a great question. And I think just like everything in medicine, it's a little bit variable. Um, you know, when we look at our patients' uh, population, it's the median time for our patients in the last three years has been about 17 days. Um, before we can understand and see if there is recovery. Uh, we have a couple of AI algorithms that I've actually developed myself that help predict left ventricular recovery, um, pulmonary hypertension reversal, and renal recovery. And so, you know, now we're, we're, we're starting a clinical trial that's going to assess some of this prospectively and, and see how we can, you know, really start to integrate this into clinical practice in the future. But on average, it's about 17 days um, to 20 days um, where we start to see this recovery. Um, You know, the pulmonary hypertension is a little bit um, different because we don't use the statistically significant variable that everybody else uses, which is pulmonary vascular resistance, um, because I think that that's a a very poor marker. Um, So there's a lot of there's a lot of nuanced stuff that our team does and, you know, and I think that's the other thing is if you have the team-based approach rather than just one clinician driving it, you know, you have people that are looking at it from different perspectives and can kind of gut check you when you're saying, hey, you know, this is now going on day 30, day 40, maybe we should really think about something something else so that we can avoid a complication. So, you know, from a team-based approach, we, we really have um, um, limited our complications uh, I can proudly say we've had 100% survival in patients that have been bridged to, to transplant or the device has been placed as a bridge to transplant in those patients. Um, and our one-year survival is around 95%. Um, so so we, have, um, we have pretty good outcomes over the last three years. And I think that, you know, hopefully as our data comes out and is peer-reviewed and published, that people will start maybe thinking a little bit differently as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and I am looking forward to a day, um, just I'm 11 years post-transplant. Um, I plan on going 50 years with this heart. And so I'm looking for when we start talking about 10, 11, 20, 30, 40 years 
at, at that type of <laughs> rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you should look at our Mayo numbers. Our okay. average survival is 13. Our longest one, I just saw her in clinic the other day, is 32 years post. Wow. Yeah. That's oh. fantastic. I think an average of 13 is very good. It's, you know, I was 24, so 13 isn't enough for me. But if you gave right, it to me right. when I'm... I mean, most people don't get <laughs> transplanted when they're that young. But, <laughs> right, uh, right. You know. Going on to our last question, maybe we can talk a little bit about the perceptions of AI. Um in healthcare in general and how patients see it and what are the disadvantages you think of AI in general? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. And I think it's an important question to ask because, you know, the perception from a clinician is like, oh my gosh, this is going to take over my job and I'm, you know, radiologists aren't going to be able to do anything, right? you know, and I, and I don't think that's the case. I think from a physician standpoint, it's, it's another tool in the toolbox. It helps guide your decisions, maybe picks things up earlier and, and kind of helps the patient out. Uh, from a patient standpoint, I think it's, it's, it can go two ways. It can either be something that they're super excited about because they, you know, they love technology and they want to embrace, you know, stick any as many sensors as you want on me and make my clothes read my heartbeat and whatever. Uh, but for those patients that are scared about that, I think it's it's kind of an opt-in. Um, you know, you don't have to use some of those services that, you know, you don't know if you're really talking to a physician or if you type in a question and, you know, you're doing this remote medicine stuff. Is it is it some AI model of chat GPT that's been modified to give you a diagnosis or, you know, make you feel better about the symptoms you have? And so, you know, there are, it's kind of a double-edged sword where patients may feel really excited um, and, and, and want to participate. And then there's also those patients that are worried about their data and their privacy. And, you know, I think when I look at AI and, and whenever we do research studies, I, I always let patients know when they participate that the data is theirs, right? We're just using it to create this, this model. And so I, uh, one of the interesting questions I was asked recently was, well, if you build a model that sells for a bajillion dollars, you know, are you going to share that with all the patients that gave you their data? And I think that's a really interesting question um, because the model is only as good as the data and the data only comes from patients, right? And so I right. think this, this collective, this like kind of collective, um, you know, almost socialist AI platform is probably going to evolve at some point where, you know, patients will be able to to benefit from it or, 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 or not. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't know what the answer is. I think it's, it gets a little bit, the water gets a little bit muddy when you start thinking about things at that, that much of a, of minutia detail. But I do think that, you know, from what I've seen so far, it's, it's very safe. It's being applied ethically and, and people are being cautious and making sure that it's not, you know, falsely diagnosing things or or as Colby mentioned, you know, having a false positive. And, and I do think that as we have more of this younger generation of people that are going into medicine and have this, um, you know, kind of um, open-mindedness and, uh, but at the same time, assertiveness to, to look at these things from all angles, you know, it'll help solidify where medicine adopts and where medicine kind of fits into this pipeline. Personally, I think it's going to be probably 70% research, 30% clinical in the long run. Um, but but we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I think that's an important aspect for us to keep in mind. Um, but if you keep doing research to make transplant recipients live longer, Aline, myself, and many others will be quite happy. 
Thanks for all you do. <laughs> yeah, that would be fantastic. <laughs> so I appreciate you guys for having me on and um, um, look forward to, to hearing other people on the podcast as well. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much for coming on. On the theme of AI, I actually tried to use like chat GPT to, to think about like a way we can end this today. And so um, I'm going to read the first two sentences are from our friend chat GPT. Uh, as we wrap up, we encourage you to continue seeking knowledge, compassion, and empathy in your own lives. Remember that on both sides of the stethoscope, every story counts and every perspective matters, which I love. <laughs> so, so that was ChatGPT's uh, outro. Um, but always feel free to message us on our socials. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at both sides of the stethoscope. Um, you can also email us at both sides of the stethoscope at gmail.com with any of your concerns, uh, comments, questions that you may have for us. Um, make sure to hit subscribe, leave us a review if you like listening to us. And remember, you can always find us on Apple, Spotify, any of your favorite podcast platforms. If there isn't a platform that you find us on, let us know and we'll see what we can do about it. So thanks for listening. Thank you, Dr. Goswami and ChatGPT. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>